Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. If you heard the words Mississippi architecture, you might picture a white-columned antebellum mansion with deep galleries and a sweeping staircase. But the state's buildings are more complex and challenging than that single image, no matter how oft-repeated in film and literature it may be. A new guidebook looks at the state's Native American mounds and villages, plantation outbuildings that bear witness to the lives of enslaved black Mississippians, and 20th century enclaves built for sawmill workers and oil tycoons, as well as traditional small-town streetscapes and the modern architecture of Greenville, Meridian, Jackson, and Biloxi. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today is Jennifer Bond, the chief architectural historian for the state of Mississippi and co-author of the new book, Buildings of Mississippi. You worked with Michael Fazio, who had been at the um, School of Architecture at Mississippi State University. He died before the book was published. But um, can you tell us a little bit about how y'all worked together on the book and, and what the book focuses on? It's part of a series yeah. that that, right. that um, buildings of the United States right. series, right? The prestigious buildings of the United right. States series, right? Which is a Society of Architectural Historians project. Uh, Michael was very involved with the SAH and the Southeastern SAH, which is a chapter, and that's really although he was a longtime member of our National Register Review Board, uh, so I knew him. I really got to spend time with him through Seesaw, which is the Southeastern Society of Architectural Historians. Um, and we became really good friends and colleagues. He read uh, my first article that I ever had published. Yeah. He was very generous with his knowledge and with his time. Um, and so when the opportunity came up to have the Mississippi book, um, he was he was on board from the beginning. And it was a it was a great partnership because he was so much more experienced in the publishing world and in the academic world, um, whereas I had the the inventory and the database that we could base our, our book on. Uh, so we, you know, we worked w- very well together. We had a great time, and I learned so much from him. So I'm really sad that he wasn't here, isn't here, but um, he was working on it to the, to the very end. So it's, it's, it's very much his book as well as mine. So, but we we based it on the inventory. Um, we have a database uh, which is publicly available on our website, and I did some database work and pulled out you know, all the individually listed National Register uh, buildings and also Mississippi landmarks and started a, a spreadsheet basically yeah. that we that we developed and just went out and started looking at buildings. And Michael said from the beginning, you know, uh, you know, take pictures of everything, but when you sit down to actually write the entry, you'll know whether it's going to be an entry or not, because Mm. if it's, if there's no hook to write an entry about, if there's nothing that comes to mind when you sit down other than, you know, this is a nice Greek revival building or whatever, um, and, and that's certainly turned out to be my experience that when you sit down, you can you can start to whittle you know thousands of buildings down to of you know a less than a thousand entries, which is what the the book has. Yeah, and the book is 
um, in a new format. It is it's it's got a sturdy cover, but it's uh, but it's a, a soft cover, and it functions as a guidebook for the state. And and to that end, y'all have also divided the state up into regions, and and you sort of take on each of those as chapters in the book, right? Um, the, I really love the new format. It's the first all-color format yeah, as well, yeah, which I'm really proud book. of. Um, and it's it's a more vertical format than than the previous uh, hardcovers, uh, which really felt like more scholarly mm-hmm. reference books than a book that you would take out in, in your you know pocket or or purse or back sack. Um, and it so, really looks like something that should live in the door of my vehicle, exactly. I mean, you know, that, that could go with me across the state. Right. And I hope it will be. I, I would love to to hear from people who've, you know, driven to the county next door right. and, and kind of seen it for the first time, you know, through the book. Right. Um, because these are all, you know, Mississippians love to go out and see their, their state. Um, but I hope the book will... We'll bring a few new buildings to mind. Uh, the book does cover not only the familiar landmarks that we all know, but also a lot of 20th century and even some early 21st century book or buildings. Um, so I hope that it'll give people a second look at the buildings they've known all their life and a new look at buildings that maybe they've walked past a hundred times and didn't even give a second glance to. Yeah. So the book um, obviously is going to cover publicly owned buildings. Um, those are often courthouses, school buildings in, in individual towns, as well as the campuses of the universities. Um, but but also, I mean, there are private businesses, there are some private residences, there are churches, religious buildings, lodges. Uh, I mean, it really runs the gamut. Right. It's supposed to represent the state. And so um, it should have you know, the major buildings, but also buildings that are just common buildings that, you know, shotgun houses or a planter's cottage or a bungalow uh, or a ranch house. You know, uh, the Medgrever's house is a, is a ranch house that you might not even think of if you drove past it, but it's it's a very important building. Um, but it's a common type of, of house right. for the 1950s in Mississippi. So, um, So I hope that it will show that wide gamut the some of the rules that to get into to be in the book it has to be still standing yeah it's there's not going to be even if there was a major building in your town if it's not still there then it's not in the book um probably um and it also needs to be publicly accessible from a public right of way it doesn't mean that it has to be open to the public but if you can't see it from the street, yeah. we don't we don't want people just walking up into people's yards uh, without uh, any warning. So um, so hopefully you can stand on the street and and see the building, or some of them are off the street but are open during pilgrimage or things right. like that, so that people can have that as a reference when they go to visit. So the oldest structure that you deal with is the Lapointe Krebs House on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, it is. Uh, not particularly noteworthy just to look at. I mean, you sort of mentioned with the Evers house how if you didn't know, you you wouldn't necessarily know. But um, but one of the most significant buildings in the state. Absolutely, it it may be uh, nationally significant. It may be the oldest building in uh, European building in the Mississippi Valley, which you know 
would be quite a large area. Um, so we're looking into maybe getting a National Historic Landmark designation, but that will be a whole other process. But yeah, it's a it, if you drove past it without any signage, you may not give it a second look, but it is a... You might think uh, it was someone's storage shed. Right. I mean, or storage house. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. It's it's on the uh, on the water uh, on kind of the back side of Pascagoula, uh, the Singing River side, and uh, it was built uh, by Hugo Krebs, who was actually a German, but uh, this was part of French uh, the French territory at that time, and I believe his wife was was French in in her lineage. Um, so it has a lot of French building techniques, uh, colonial building techniques that are, you know, there's not many other examples to study, but um, very common uh, Gulf Coast building techniques of that period with the bousillage, which is a Spanish moss, a cementious material made of Spanish moss, and then the tabby, which is another type of cementious material made out of oyster shells. So it's very much of its place, um, and it has had a very long life. I think the Krebs family um, finally moved out uh, in 1915, so 1757 to 1915 is a pretty good run. So, yeah, and yeah. and there were core samples maybe that were done recently that that established or or indicate that it may be. Um, even older than had been thought, was right? That... Well, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of debate about how old yeah. it was. the The land was granted in seventeen eighteen, so there was right a lot of the uh, material would say seventeen eighteen, but it was pretty clear that it was not built yeah. that year. Uh, and then some other people felt that it was built after seventeen seventy seven when there was a major hurricane and there was a. Uh, some documentation that all of Krebs' buildings were destroyed. So mm -hmm. there was something to that effect in a in a report of the period. Um, but the dendrochronology, which is a wood sampling dating technique that uses the tree rings mm -hmm. from the wood in the building, um, dated it to 1757. So that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, very amazing. So. That would definitely put it in Hugo Krebs period, which is the first known uh, people who building uh, French people who occupied that site. So um, it's a really, really impressive place once you start to, you know, dig a little bit right. beneath the surface and and understand this long history. So the book starts on the coast. Um, there are actually starts in Natchez. Oh, that's right. Starts in yeah. Natchez. And oh, ends that's, in, on the coast. That's right. That's yeah. right. Comes back around to yeah. it. Um, Natchez, the, you know, older than New Orleans. Um, and so no surprise that as one time the largest city in the state, it would feature prominently. Um, there are all sorts of buildings um, from Natchez in it. What were some of the ones that were, were particularly significant as far as you thought to include? Well, of course, Natchez has so many National Historic Landmarks. It, it's kind of a, a wealth of material. And we were so fortunate that Mimi Miller, the longtime director of the Historic Natchez Foundation, uh, wrote the Adams County section. Uh, so her you know, extensive knowledge that I could never have reproduced uh, with my own research uh, just went right into the book. And uh, so, you know, I, I loved how she brought out, 
not only the architecture, which is impressive, but also the stories of the, the various people who lived in these buildings and also the, the outbuildings that, um, you know, go along with a lot of these suburban villas in, in Natchez. Yeah. So for the longest time, Natchez, uh, known and significant for the grand houses that were there. But uh, one of the things that, that we've sort of focused on more and more of late is the tremendous collection of outbuildings right. that still stand, especially those associated with slavery. Right. Uh, it's It may be the most um, concentrate, highest concentration of, of antebellum outbuildings in the South. Um, and of course, in the South, uh, unlike the North, where a lot of the service spaces were all in the same building because of heat and, and all sorts of other reasons. Uh, but in the South, a lot of these service spaces were put into separate buildings. So you have a lot of travel writers of, of that period commenting that, you know, there's like a little village of buildings here, you know, that that would normally be under one roof in the North. But so you have kitchens, you have smokehouses, you have carriage houses, and of course, uh, you have slave quarters. Um, so that's a, an amazing record of um, not only of that period, but how uh, how the service spaces changed from the time uh, slaves lived there to when, after emancipation, uh, planters were trying to lure people <laughs> to stay on the land and work for them as right. tenants. And so, you know, you would upgrade your spaces to to, you know, as you would today to uh, try to try to get people to come work for you. Yeah. So that's a really interesting story that gets into that Reconstruction era in the later 19th century. Um, so, yeah, Natchez is just a, is such a rich treasure trove. Yeah, I mean, you have buildings from Spanish rule, from French, from British. I mean, it, it yeah, and some that display characteristics of those eras um, unlike anywhere else in the state. Right, absolutely. And even in the, in the country, I, you know, one of the things you learn about, uh, you know, major cities of the 19th century is as they expanded, they, uh, the, the elites would build suburban villas on these very large estates on the outer edge of the city. So they didn't have to worry about, you know, the smells and the smoke and the traffic right. and all that, as people do today. Yeah. Um, but as those cities, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, as they expanded, those estates were cut up and usually those buildings were destroyed. So um, even Charleston, uh, Richmond, places like that had those, but in many cases, those were later demolished. So Natchez has probably the best selection of just suburban villas, just apart from anything you know, to do with yeah. service spaces. So uh, it's a really, there's so many different ways to approach Natchez. That's what I really love about it. And then you can move up into Port Gibson, into Vicksburg, which are both covered extensively in the book. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And Vicksburg, you know, Vicksburg is an interesting uh, city to to compare to Natchez because they were both technically in the Natchez district in the, in the French era. But um, its later history, especially after the Civil War, is much more closely tied to the Mississippi Delta. So you have that old saying. The Mississippi Delta starts in the 
Peabody Hotel and ends on Catfish Row in, in Vicksburg. So. David L. Cohen, yeah. Yeah, so uh, because they were getting the cotton that was being shipped down the Yazoo and, and Deer Creek um, and and really were much more closely tied to the, the Delta in their later era and, of course, became the largest state, the largest city in the state after the Civil War. Yeah, and if you didn't grow up in Vicksburg or, or grow up going there often, you might be, as I was, surprised by how many big buildings there are. Uh, you know, I mean, it, right. it really was a center of commerce. Absolutely. Late 19th century, early 20th century buildings, unlike unlike Natchez, which has some from that era, yeah. but not anything near what Vicksburg had. And of course, that was when Vicksburg was the largest city, was right on the, the river. You know, it was, it was really the, the center of commerce in the state. Uh, Vicksburg National Military Park was starting to get going, and so there were a lot of uh, northern businessmen coming down and staying. So you have a really interesting mix. Um, one of the things I love about Vicksburg is that early 20th century period when you have these really cutting-edge, uh, almost prairie, some of them are almost prairie-style uh, houses mm-hmm. in the southern suburbs of Vicksburg that um, that I hope the book will help uh get a little more attention to because yeah. it really deserves that attention architecturally. If you're curious about the state's architecture, visit the Mississippi Department of Archives and History's website to find the Historic Resources Inventory. That digital database contains information on individual houses, churches and synagogues, schools, courthouses, libraries, places of business and more. You can find construction dates, names of architects and builders, photographs, and digitized National Register of Historic Places nominations when available. If you want still more information, the department's historic preservation staff maintain at their Jackson headquarters additional design-related historical documents, newspaper clippings, blueprints, drawings, and other media. And then Meridian, for a while, was the largest city in the state, and um, Lots of commercial buildings there. Lots of residential buildings that are in the book. Yeah, it's of course. When I started, uh, it's downtown was really the most intact and largest early twentieth century downtown. Of course, Vicksburg had 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 that tornado in nineteen fifty three, so a lot of its downtown had been reworked at that time, modernized. Uh, But but Meridian's downtown was very cohesive. they have had, you know, some some uh, demolitions since then, but they've got some really amazing buildings, and then even uh, modernist buildings. Uh, Chris Risher, right, one of the really the the best, I would say, modernists in Mississippi. Um, just fantastic, fantastic buildings. And and Fazio wrote that section, and he really dug into to Risher. So I hope people will get to know Risher because he has not gotten a lot of attention as an architect. Yeah, I mean, well worth a day trip for folks to go to Meridian. Um, plenty of plenty of good architecture to see there uh, from walking around downtown to, to recently restored things like the, the three-foot building to to some of the other structures that are... Right. City around. Hall is probably yeah, the yeah. most fabulous city hall in the state. Uh, 1915, uh, completely clad in white terracotta. And so you you can tell that it was the largest largest city around that time because it's there was a lot of money going on. And then Jackson eventually displaced it as the most populous city 
and um, there's fabulous architecture here. There's also Yazoo Clay here, which plays havoc with a lot of those fabulous buildings and, and roadways as well. Um, but um, some really nice um, mid-century stuff here as well. Absolutely. You know, uh, if you look at the the dates, three high-rise skyscrapers in downtown Jackson were going up in 1929. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, as we now know, was not a great year for uh, building skyscrapers. <laughs> but it's a, it's just kind of an incredible thing to think about that, that kind of activity was going on in, in Jackson. But, of course, you had the oil boom of the 30s. So Jackson didn't really hit the skids in, in the 30s. It, it was slower, but it was it was still growing quite a bit in that period. And then... By the 1950s, it was it was dominant. You know, it had just leapfrogged over everyone else, um, and the architectural firms uh, reflected that. There were this was the basis uh, of all the big architecture firms, other than Risher, uh, and maybe a couple on the coast. Um, but so you know, N.W. Overstreet being the most prominent yeah. uh, and probably one of the largest of those firms. Uh, and we have some great uh, works by him and Jackson, Bailey High School, one yeah. of my favorites. Um, but, you know, a lot of other architects. We had uh, Jack Canizero, who was another really good modernist, um, and uh, E.L. Mulvaney, mm -hmm. who did the building right across from us, the War Memorial. So uh, there was a lot of energy going on. There was an article uh, published in the uh, Architectural Record, which was a national journal, about Jackson's architectural uh, scene in 1954, so that it was it was known and recognized at that time for its for its architectural quality. And those architects were being hired not just to design buildings, but residences as well. And so you have oh, yeah. in the neighborhoods some really interesting houses. Absolutely. Well, of course, most of them lived in in these neighborhoods. Yeah. So you have N.W. Overstreet's house, Bellhaven, of course, has. Just a whole plethora of, of architects' houses. I loved his uh, house for years, not knowing it was his, but yeah. walking by <laughs> it. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Emmett Hull, yeah. Uh, his house is in that neighborhood. Uh, and then Fondren, of course, has quite a few of uh, Frank Gates had a house in Fondren, a nice ranch house. And then even later, uh, you know, um, Tom Biggs has a house in Fondren, one of, one of the later modernists. Um, so, yeah, they, they were... They were here, and they were doing all sorts of buildings, public and private. One of the points that y'all make in the book is that the names of the architects, the, the white architects, are known, and we can sit here and talk about those. But so many of the black artisans um, who worked on the buildings, maybe making brick, uh, the workers who provided the labor to construct so many of the buildings of the 19th century in particular here, um, are just not known. Right. And, and, and it has been easy to not talk about their role because we didn't have their names and it's easier to talk about folks if you can use their names. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, until really, I would say the late 20th century, uh, a lot of Masons, a, a big proportion of Masons were were black. Uh, and in fact, this was very well known. W.E.B. Du Bois talks about it in, in his uh, work, The Black Artisan, that that African-Americans had almost a lock on on brick masonry. 
Uh, and here at the new Capitol, there's a really interesting episode where the Chicago building firm came down and they brought, of course, their unionized white laborers. Um, and they also hired some local black masons. Mm-hmm. And some of the la- the union guys said, no, we're not working with with these people. And and didn't put it in union terms. They put it in racial terms. And in in uh, fairness to the contractor, he said, well, then you're off the project. So uh, he kept the black masons. And there was a lot of recognition of that in not only the white press, but the black press of this interesting um paradox of unionism yeah. and and racial uh, tensions yeah. so um but yeah the the almost i would i would expect that almost any um brick building in downtown jackson from certainly before the 1930s or 40s was probably had, at least probably had a number of black masons uh plasters were also uh primarily african american so a lot of the plaster work is done by African Americans. One of the one of the earliest really mysterious uh, episodes we have is um, the Weldon brothers who designed and built the Vicksburg courthouse, the Raymond courthouse, mm-hmm. among others. Um, there was this interesting um, story that was told about the Weldon brothers after the Civil War. Um, that they had a black architect, a slave architect. Most of their workforce was uh, enslaved men. Uh, and you see that in the, in the slave schedules. It says um, skilled carpenters and masons. I think it's is how they put it. Uh, but this, this man was named John Jackson. And unfortunately, thousands of men were named John, John Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. So it's been difficult to try to find him uh, in the census. Uh, supposedly, he lived in Port Gibson after the war. The Weldons, both or all three of the brothers, uh, one of them died in the war. Two of them uh, moved to Pennsylvania. So they just disappeared out of the Mississippi mm-hmm. records. So that's that's a really interesting story. I'd like to someday, maybe that will be the... My last big scholarly yeah. project will be to find John Jackson, <laughs> John Jackson. And, and write his biography. But uh, so it, it, it's really hard to find, but it's really uh, important to find it. And, uh, and I'd really enjoy looking for it. Yeah. That information. There are some houses um, in Mississippi that are connected with famous names in different fields. Um, two of the most famous nationally prominent architects have a connection on the Mississippi Gulf Coast um, at the Charlie Norwood House. Right. Uh, it has been the source of dispute. Um, they both sort of took credit for it at different times. Can you settle for us definitively here today who actually is responsible for the Charlie Norwood House? Yes. Uh, the, the, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, the Charlie Norwood House was next door to the Lewis Sullivan House. Uh, if you know anything about American architecture, Lewis Sullivan was the uh, known as the father of the skyscraper and the father of modernism. Uh, and he was from Chicago. Uh, there were very close railroad connections between Chicago and New Orleans, the famous city of New Orleans. And then you could easily hop another train and head over to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which a lot of people did. Uh, so he settled. Uh, he, he bought a, a winter cottage. 
uh, on the on the in Ocean Springs on the coast uh, with his friends, the Charleys. Uh, Charlie's also have a very famous house by Lewis Sullivan in Chicago that is now the headquarters of the Society of Architectural Historians. Hmm. So, um, and then later, after Lewis Sullivan had died, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, who worked for Sullivan in 1890, uh, claimed this as one of his uh, his best buildings or best houses. Um, it is a fine house. It is a fine house. And, you know, in a, in a kind of backhanded way, it's, it's a compliment that Frank Lloyd Wright would think that this was a yeah. house worthy of him taking credit for. Um, one thing that Frank Lloyd Wright may not have understood when he said that was that the Charnley house actually burned in 1897. Uh, soon after the Charleys had sold it to the Norwoods, who were also friends of Sullivan and also had lumber interests in South Mississippi, as the Charleys did. So he may not have known that, but he was certainly out of Lewis Sullivan's office by that point. Um, even To me, even if he had done something on the house in 1890, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Lewis Sullivan would like hand over his his beach house yeah. to Frank Lloyd Wright. But yeah. I don't know all of the ins and outs of that office. Um, and so uh, there has been dispute, as you can imagine, over the years. Uh, I think it's got a lot of both of them in it. Yeah. And I yeah. will keep it at that. <laughs> the house was nearly destroyed, could easily have been lost. in Absolutely. Katrina. It was washed off its foundation. Um, it, all sorts of, of groups and individuals came together to help save it. And now the restored house um, can be seen by the public. Right. I mean, it's, it is open for, for, point, or for tours by appointment and also for public uh, use. Um, and so it's, it's such an amazing house. The, it's, really, it's really at the beginning of the modern house. Right. Uh, it's got a flowing open floor plan. Uh, a lot of windows. Uh, and then on top of that, the thing I really love the most about it is that it's so Mississippi. It's got uh, all of its interior is uh, curly pine, right? which we believe Norwood got from his mill uh, in Lincoln County. Uh, and it's just amazing. Yeah, it's a it's glorious just, light. Yeah, it really there. is. I mean, yeah, it's almost like a, a honey yeah. light. Yeah. Yeah, really well beautiful. worth well worth the effort for for folks to try to find that. Right. Um, y'all talk about the cottage being one of the signature styles of the state. Um, There's certainly lots of dog trot houses. There are shotgun houses throughout, and probably the most famous of those would be the birthplace of Elvis Presley in Tupelo. That's right. That's right. Uh, which unfortunately is not listed on the National Register because Elvis only lived there very briefly as a child. And so Graceland is his, is what really is associated right. with him. And that is a national historic landmark. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, shotgun houses are a lot of times associated with African-American neighborhoods as they, as they, it, which is a warranted uh, association, Ferris Street here in Jackson, um, the subdivisions in, in Greenwood. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it also was the it was worker housing. It was where white and black workers often lived, and uh, so it's it's got a very distinctive uh, form where there's just one room after another set 
you know, from front to back uh, with no hallways or anything like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. A, a, a style that's familiar to almost anyone as soon as they see it, whether they knew it was called that or not right. before. Right. Um, and, and the house, even though it's not on the national register is open it uh, is. and available that's right. for, and for folks to see. And it is a Mississippi landmark, I should, should point out. So what are some of the ways that folks can see the buildings of Mississippi as written about? I mean, there's your book, which is a guidebook. And so, so there's that. Um, what are, what are, what are ways that folks who are interested in seeing houses in Holly Springs or, or wherever be able to see? Sure. Uh, the, you know, the pilgrimage uh, was established in Natchez in the early 1930s as a really a fundraiser to, to help maintain these enormous houses. Um, but it spread around the state. So Natchez, uh, Vicksburg, Holly Springs, Aberdeen uh, all have pilgrimages, usually in the spring. I think Carrollton sometimes has theirs in the fall. Yeah. So um, there, you just have to kind of keep an eye out uh, for those dates. Nowadays, most of them are online. So you can you can just search around January, February, start searching for your dates. Yeah. But that's really a great way to get into. A lot of these are still private residences. And so that's when you're going to be able to actually get inside, which is where a house really tells its story. You know, it might be a really beautiful house on the outside, but on the inside, it's telling a lot of a lot of different stories as well. So, um, uh, you know, and then, of course, churches are often on those pilgrimages. Yeah. So, uh I really love getting inside a church because a lot of times they're not open during the day when I'm wandering around. Uh, but courthouses you can walk into, right. uh, public buildings, you know, you can typically walk into. So um, there's you just have to kind of keep an eye out and be aware of when the tours are going on. Right. So Christmas tours are sometimes a good a good way to do it. And the state through the Department of Archives and History and, and other ways as well for over half a century has been working to restore, to preserve, to, to save, and to make um, available to the public historic structures across the state. Right. Um, and so there, there are good records for, for all those things. Um, and the state does have a good record of historic preservation efforts. I think so. You know, I, I grew up in Florida and I love Florida, but, uh, you know, there, the, count, the courthouse in my town is potentially going to be destroyed for a four-lane highway. <laughs> Uh, 1920s courthouse. So, you know, th there, there's kind of a different ethic. Um, and and to have the building still in use and still being uh, useful to their communities, I think, is a big part of that. Uh, yeah. You know, it, I, I think the, the thing that people think about when they think of preservation is house museums, but there are there are many other ways and, and potentially better ways to preserve a, a place. And, and most of the time, the best way is to live in it and yeah. be a part of it and maintain it. Yeah. After spending years, really, traveling across the state, looking at the architecture of, you know, houses, of, of, of religious um, institutions, of, of businesses, what are some of your takeaways for the character of architecture in Mississippi? What are the things that, um, that, that you sort of hold with you on that? Yeah, I think, you know, Mississippi is known for its big white columns, yeah. and that's justified. There are some really amazing Greek revival houses. But to me, I'm kind of a simple gal. You know, I like I like the um, simplicity of craftsman style. Yeah. I 
think that's a very American style. It's it's kind of sturdy, but it has a sense of style to it. Um, and there are so many bungalows, crashing bungalows in Mississippi. Yeah. I, I never really thought about it, but a lot of people who came actually for uh, Katrina, a lot of the volunteers who came and uh, helped with our historic buildings after Katrina commented about, oh, my goodness, you have so many great craftsman bungalows. And hmm. I thought, well, okay, yeah, <laughs> sure do. <laughs> uh, oh, so, you know, we we sh- we should celebrate those because in, in many cases, those are also, you know, more middle class. They're more accessible to people today, kind of understand them better and, and may be able to live in them a little better than a big Greek revival mansion. But also it was the 19... 19- teens and 20s was really when a black middle class was starting to develop. So, for instance, you have the IT Montgomery House in Mount Bayou, Mm -hmm. which is a really nice uh, two-story craftsman-style building, maybe the earliest craftsman-style of a a black uh, leader in the state. Hmm. So I think that's significant. And uh, I really enjoy just driving through those neighborhoods. I just think they're very livable today. Yeah. and and the late the the after after the World War II, those kind of neighborhoods kind of extended that uh, accessibility to ranch style houses, which right. which succeeded craftsmen. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoy the subtlety and the the um, simplicity, oftentimes of of our historic landmarks. I, I don't I, I love a big uh, expensive building, but I think a lot of times beauty and joy can come out of a a, a more simplified building, which is what we have around the state. Sounds like a prescription for a walk around your own neighborhood. That's right. Um, See what you have in your own backyard. That's right. The book is Buildings of Mississippi. It's a a great publication. I'm proud to have it. Um, And I think everyone who takes a look at it, will learn more about their area of the state. Jennifer, thank you for being with us today. Enjoyed it. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.